Good morning. Welcome to Phoenix Bible Church. It's good to see you guys. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, would love to do so after the service. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you fathers out here. Uh, I'm a father of three, and uh, this morning I woke up. Both my kids were sick uh, of the stomach variety, and my two-year-old son went to the bathroom on the floor. And so I really felt the love of Father's Day in a real way this morning, uh, but they were not too sick to give Daddy a hug and tell me they loved me before I left for today, and they're at home, and hope they're feeling better right now. But happy Father's Day to you as well. As we talk about Father's Day, it's a, it's a great fit for our sermon this morning. We're talking about the life of David and looking at him. He was a father, amongst other things. And really, when you look at the life of David, he was a bit of a renaissance man, right? If you know the story of David at all, like he was a shepherd, but he was also a warrior, he was a king, but he was also a musician. He was a poet, right? He was a bit of a renaissance man. He, he's all-encompassing a bit in Scripture as we look at his life. And then we look at some other parts of his life that aren't so great. We look at his life and we see he was an adulterer and a murderer later on in life when he was king. And through all of that, what you see in the story of David is that he was a man of great passion. And it was a passion that sometimes led him to God but that sometimes led him to destruction. And I don't know about you, as I read the story of David, I can relate. And I know you can too. Whatever level of passion you have in your life for success, relationship, career, whatever the case may be, the drive, the ambition you have in your life, that can lead you to God or that can lead you to destruction. And so that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to look at a portion of David's life. David has a lot on the pages of Scripture. We could look at a lot of different things. We're going to look at a portion this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, head there. And as you head there, I'm going to pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these men and women. I thank you that we have a few moments to look at your word, a few moments to be challenged by it, to be encouraged by it. And God, I pray that in this moment, as there could be a lot of distractions, God, that you would remove those that you would quicken our minds so we could think clearly. God, that you would soften our hearts so we could be teachable and listen to what you want us to hear this morning, what, what you want us to apply this morning. God, I pray that you would show us that. I pray that this would be more than just an exercise in Bible trivia to learn about an Old Testament character. God, I pray that it would be more than that. God, I pray that it would be illuminating to our minds. It would be transformative in our hearts. And you would change this this morning as we look at your word. Do that by your spirit and through your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at it and just jump right in. So 1 Samuel 24, look at the text with me. It says this, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi." Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went out to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as that shall seem, as it, as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Oh, yes. And he said to his men, 
The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 7. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So as we look at this passage, just some background. Some of you are familiar with this story of David. Some of you are not. So I want to catch you up. David was a shepherd with a father named Jesse. If you were here last week, we talked about Ruth. And Ruth has this child named Obed. And in that passage, it says Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David. So that's the lineage that David comes from. And David was the unexpected choice of the prophet Samuel as king, right? He didn't expect that. His brothers didn't expect that. Jesse didn't expect that. But David is announced as the future king. And then David goes out and slays this Philistine giant, right? Even if you haven't grown up around church, you know that part of the story. David and Goliath. And then he comes home, and David is a celebrated war hero. Literally, people would sing songs about David. They would see songs about David, and they would say, Saul, who was the king at the time, King Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed ten thousands. And so David comes home from this battle with Goliath. He kills him, and he's a celebrated war hero. And King Saul starts to see this, and he's not too thrilled by this guy stealing his thunder. And so he gets jealous, and that jealousy turns into rage, and he goes out, and he's determined to kill David. So through a couple circumstances, David's on the run. And that's where we come to in this passage. He's on the run, and he's in a cave in the wilderness of Engedi. And there's several things, if you look at the text, verse 2, that are just really interesting. Saul brings 3,000 men to this battle. We think, we think David had about 600 men. So Saul brings five times as many men as David to kill David. Right? It's like bringing a shotgun to kill a cockroach. Right? He's, it shows us how bad Saul wanted to kill David. He was obsessed with this. He was infuriated with rage. He wanted David gone. Verse 3, what happens? Reality sets in, right? And look at the text. Reality sets in. Saul, this king, this warrior, this man on a mission, has to relieve himself. Right? So it kind of stops him. In that uh, original language, relieve himself literally means to cover his feet. And Saul literally drops his pants to take care of business in this cave, right? And this is just a crazy scene. If you try to put yourself in this scene, the irony of this is that David and his men are in that same cave. Like they're deep in the innermost parts of the cave hiding out. And they had to have heard Saul and his men coming. He has 3,000 men, right? And so they're deep in this cave, hiding out, and they hear these men, and they think they're surrounded. And i got to think they were freaking out, like, shh, don't move. What's going to happen? Can we handle this? There's not as many of us as there is of them. And then all of a sudden, they see the shadow of King Saul approaching them. And they think maybe he's going to pull out a sword. Maybe he's going to shout a battle cry, and all his men are going to come storming in. But no, what does he do? He drops his pants to relieve himself. Like nature calls. And these men had to have been freaking out like, no way this is happening right now. Like this is unbelievable. And so they're shocked. And, and, and at this point, they're taking their opportunity. They realize what's at stake here. And so they go in verse 4 and they say, David, here's the day. This is the day the Lord has made. Right? 
The Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. That's happening. And you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. They're thinking this is unbelievable that God has done this, that he's laid it out perfectly. And they're saying, David, take your shot. right? Kill him. This is your chance. He's vulnerable. He came upon our cave. I mean, God must have laid this out. One commentator calls this the Lord's will incentive. That when we want to do something and we're not really sure about it, we just blame it on God. Right? We're like, God must have laid this out. Like, it's perfect. We see this in our lives. I see it most prevalent in the dating world. Like, when maybe you have experienced this, maybe some of you have done this, right? But when you want uh, to date somebody and you know it's not right and that person's not a believer and you're just like, but I don't know. I mean, they just, he's a nice guy, you know, and I know he's not a believer and he doesn't go to church and he doesn't speak nicely to me, but maybe Jesus put him in my path. Maybe so I could evangelate him. Like maybe that's the purpose. Like maybe Jesus wants me to date him. And I listen to that and I think, really? No. That's not what Jesus wants. Like you can't blame that on God. And you see it on the flip side in the dating world as well. Again, maybe some of you have done this. But you want to break up with somebody that you're dating. Maybe you did this in college or in high school. You want to break up with somebody that you're dating. And instead of just coming to them and being direct with them, you don't do that, right? Who does that? You go to them and you're like, man, I've just been praying about it. And I feel like God doesn't want me to date anybody right now. I mean, I just feel like I need to be single for his glory, right? Doesn't Paul talk about that in scripture? And, you know, instead of just being honest and say, hey, man, we're not a good fit, like we'll go to that person and just be like, the God of the heavens told me not to date you. So who am I to argue, right? The Lord's will incentive. There's something that we want to do. We're not sure about it. We're not sure how to carry it out or execute it, so we blame it on God. And that's what David's men are doing. They're taking this Lord's will incentive, and they're saying, man, it must be God. We're in this cave. He comes to this cave. He's relieving himself. Like, it's a perfect scenario. Take him out, David. Kill him. But what does David do? He buys into it a little bit. This text says he stealthily cuts off a piece of his robe. That would have been a sign to dishonor the king. So he thinks about this, but it says afterwards David's heart struck him. And he thinks about what he's doing. And he thinks about God. And he says, the Lord forbids this. He comes back and he says, I can't do this. He refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed twice. All right, he says, Saul may be sinful, but he was selected by God as king. And I need to honor that. And this isn't right. This isn't the right time. This isn't the right motive. This isn't the right action. And Saul, or, or sorry, David doesn't kill him. But not only that, he makes sure his men don't either. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says he persuades his men not to attack Saul. Persuaded doesn't really capture the original meaning well there. Literally, the word in Hebrew means to tear into pieces. And so as you look at this, David not only doesn't kill Saul, but he rips into his men. And he says, you're not going to kill him either. Like, it's not happening today. But if you think about it, David has lots of reasons to go ahead with this. Like, David had all the reasons in the world to go to his men and say, go get him. Like, do your thing. Like, Saul had been trying to kill David over and over. It has pushed him away from his wife 
He's had to leave his home. He's had to leave his best friend, Jonathan. He's hiding in a cave. Yet he's supposed to be the next rightful king. He had all the reasons in the world to kill Saul, to take vengeance, but he doesn't. So the question is how? How? How does that not happen? How do we not read this scenario and it play out by David killing Saul? That's the first thing we're going to see is he resists his first impulse by looking to God. In this text, we see his heart struck him. He says, the Lord forbids. He involves God in the equation. He realizes that God is holy, that he has a plan. Throughout scripture, you see that we're to honor authority. And right now, Saul is king. He's crazy, but he's king. And this isn't the plan. And so Paul, uh, or sorry, David resists his first impulse. My daughter, Neela, illustrated this well the other day. She's six years old. And she came to us, and she was like, I'm going to teach you a lesson about God. And so we sat down, and she was the teacher, and she was going to teach us a lesson about God. And she got some paper, and she wrote on the paper, God. She said, this is God. And she drew a throne and a heart. It's really cute. And the other side of the paper, she drew sin. And she said, this is God, and this is sin. And for sin, she drew a claw, because that accurately represents sin, right? The sin that so easily entangles my daughter, the theologian. She knew what she was saying. So she's teaching us this lesson. She says, this is God, and this is sin. And she said something very basic, but so important. She said, God is holy, and we are not. She said, we are sinful, and God is not. Listen, that's a basic understanding of the Christian faith, a basic understanding of God. But how many times do we not function that way? Right? How many times does somebody wrong you at your job and you think, I got to retaliate? Like, I got I to go at him. Like, he's trying to push me out. I got to do my thing. I got to go to him. I'm going to send that email. I'm going to confront him. And we just respond to our first impulse. Maybe it's emotion. Maybe it's hurt. And we just respond and we don't realize that we are sinful, but God is not. So we don't need to just go off our emotions, our own will. We need to look to God. And that's what David does. He said, the Lord forbids this. His heart struck him. Struck him. He felt convicted that he was sinful. God is not, and maybe he should look to him. I read an article in Time Magazine recently. It was called The Science of Why Your Kids Can't Resist Frozen. Because there's a science to that. I don't know if your kids watch that. but uh, So I read it because I was wanting to know, why do my kids like Frozen so much? And it said a lot of things, but basically it boiled down to this. It said it was a, a universally appealing desire to be happy and free. That that's why we like this movie. That it represents this universally appealing desire to be happy and free. And if you think about it, if we are sinful, if our first impulse is often sin, if we don't involve God, our desire, our execution of that desire to be happy, to be free, is often not the right one. Like sometimes it is. Sometimes we'll look out and get it right. But if we don't involve God, if we just go off our first impulse to chase that freedom, to chase that happiness that we all want, like it's a universal appealing desire, we all want that. David probably thought for a second, yeah, maybe they're right. Like maybe Saul is here for a reason. and Maybe I can take him out and just become king right now and not wait. And so he goes and he strikes a corner 
of his robe, and he buys into that for a little bit, that maybe this will bring freedom, that maybe I don't have to hide out in this cave, that maybe I can go home to be with my wife, to be with my friend, and take my rightful spot as king. And maybe he thought for a second that this was the way towards that. But he resists that. He looks to God, and he doesn't go that route. But look at what he does. Look at the next uh, verse, verse 8. Verse 8, it says this, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today in my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason, treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. So you look at verse 8, not only does David resist the urge to kill Saul, he takes it a step further, right? He puts mercy on display. He goes after Saul. He calls him Lord and King, and he bows before him. And I would have to guess that David's men are blown away by this. Like, not only, David, are you not going to take advantage of this dream, God-ordained opportunity to take Saul out, not only are you not going to do that, but you fool, David. I mean, we could have at least continued to hide out in the cave. Like, what a fool. Like, what a foolish thing to do. Like, why would you go out and say, hey, Saul, wait up, buddy. Like, I just want to tell you something. I'm right here. You're my king. I want to serve you. Saul has been trying to kill David with everything he has, 3,000 men. And so his men had to be thinking, not only are you not going to kill Saul, but you're going to out us in front of 3,000 soldiers. That's the scenario. But that's what David does. He puts mercy on display. Verse 10, he says, I could have killed you, but I didn't. He chooses mercy over vengeance. He does what is right, even though it doesn't make sense. Like, it doesn't matter what the king does. Is he trying to kill me? Yes. Did he rob me of my home? Yes. Am I hiding in a cave? Yes. Should I be the rightful king? But I'm not, yes. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to display mercy. I'm going to do what's right no matter what he does. Like, no matter what, how he responds, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to show him mercy. I'm going to show him my true character. This is not what I'm about. And so he goes out and he does that. He does what is right no matter what anybody else was going to do. I remember the first movie, Spider-Man, when it first came out, not the reboot, the original with Tobey Maguire several years ago, but I remember going to that movie, and it was right around the, when the movie came out, which was, is the best time to go to any movie, because the whole theater is just filled with people, and there's usually audience interaction, right? People are engaged, they're like cheering and clapping and different things like that, and so I remember going to this movie, and I don't know if you remember this movie, but Tobey uh, gets his Spidey powers, and he goes to this wrestling match. That's the first thing he does. He goes to this wrestling match. He wins. He goes to the promoter, and he's supposed to get some money from this. He thinks I'll make some cash off these new powers that I have. 
He goes to the promoter to get that. The promoter stiffs him. He doesn't give him all his money. Toby's frustrated. He walks away, right? And then a robber comes and steals money from that promoter. And he yells out to Spider-Man, stop him. And what does Toby do? He goes to the side and lets him pass, right? And everybody in that theater at that moment was just like, yeah, Toby, that's right, get him. And in that moment, the promoter comes up to Toby and he says, hey, why didn't you stop him? And he says to the promoter, like, I don't remember that being my problem. And when he says that, the whole audience is just like, ooh. <laughs> like they were loving it. It was great, right? And then the scene continues, and if you remember the movie, this is what happens. He goes out to the street, and he finds that his uncle's dead. And he goes on to chase the killer, and he realizes the killer was the same guy he arrogantly just let go by out of his frustration and anger just a few minutes ago. And in that moment, the whole theater was silent, except for a few people who were just whispering, like, he should have done the right thing. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what anybody says. Like, you got to do the right thing. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. Like, you weren't saying that a few minutes ago. Like, you were cheering a few minutes ago at his retaliation and his revenge. The whole point of that movie is that Spider-Man does what's right, even when it doesn't make sense. He goes on to do that. He learns. i got to do what's right. It doesn't matter what anybody else does, right? It's a lesson from Spider-Man. But that's what we see David do. It doesn't make sense. All odds are stacked against him. Not only does he choose just to be passive and not kill Saul, but he goes out before him. He puts himself and all his men at risk before 3,000 soldiers, and he displays mercy. And we see that in the New Testament as well. Romans 12, it says, bless those who persecute you. Verse 20, it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Notice it doesn't say in this passage, give him something to drink and then heap burning coals on his head. Right? It's not like give him some water and then heap the burning coals. That's not the point. It's the point is that your kindness leads to conviction. That you be kind. That you do the right thing. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when that person has wronged you. That you be kind to them. And that God will bring a conviction. And that God will work it out. That we're to show mercy. And if you think about this in light of Jesus, as we go on to look at the whole of Scripture, Jesus comes to a people, and honestly, it doesn't make sense. Like, those people reject him. Those people are indifferent to him. Even today, people are indifferent. They reject Jesus. And yet he dies on the cross for all of sin. He is our substitute. He goes to the cross, he's beaten, he's arrested, he's accused, and he's hanging up there on that cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And in his kindness, he leads us to repentance. He lays his life down on the cross when it doesn't make sense. And because of that, you and I, man, we should be a people of mercy. Jesus displays the ultimate act of mercy on the cross. And because of that, we get the opportunity to believe in Jesus, we receive that mercy, but we also get to show that mercy. We get to show that mercy to others. And so if you think about it, the way we should respond as Christians, because we know God, is no longer like, I like you, I don't like you, you have wronged me, you're out to get me. 
definitely we'll feel those things. That will be our first impulse. But we need to get to a place where we move past, I don't like you, I like you. We move past that to a place of these aren't just people that I have affinity for or don't. These are people for whom Jesus died. These are sinners in need of God. Like we have to get to that point where we see people with the lenses of mercy. That's how David sees Saul in this moment. He doesn't always see him that way, but that's how David sees Saul in this moment. If you know God, we got to resist that first impulse in that relationship, in that conflict, in that job, in that family. you got to resist that first impulse and display mercy. Why? Because you're a great person? No, because you serve a great God who has shown you mercy. And so you realize, I deserve the wrath of God. Like, I was destined for hell. In my works, in my life, that's where I was headed. Jesus comes when it doesn't make sense, gives his life. And so now I don't get hell. I get his grace. I get a relationship with him. I get to spend eternity in him, with him. That that's the mercy he shows. And when we grasp that, our heart melts. That captivates us. And we begin to show other people mercy. So what do we do with passion? We resist our first impulse because often it's sinful. And then we display mercy because we have received mercy. And then the third thing we do is we trust God. Look at the text again. 1 Samuel 24, verse 12, it says this. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said this. Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Verse 17, he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand, swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Verses 12 and 15, you see this phrase, may the Lord judge. You see it twice. You see that David is trusting God with justice. Verse 13, he says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. He doesn't just trust God. He proclaims this truth, right? That, listen, if I was wicked, I would have killed you back in the cave. But I didn't do that. Right? So he trusts God, but he also proclaims truth in this situation. Verse 16, Saul's crying. Verse 20, Saul acknowledges David will eventually be king. Even though it doesn't stop him from trying to kill David one more time. Saul eventually dies in battle with the Philistines, and David is nowhere near that. And he becomes king. If you know the story, David goes on to become king. Saul dies in battle. 
But David doesn't take his life. And the end result is the same. He becomes king. He has to wait a little while longer. He has to run a little bit longer. He goes through a few more trials. He has to be patient. But eventually what God has promised happens as David trusts God. I don't know if you think about it this way, but I did as I read it. I just thought, man, why doesn't, why doesn't God just tell David, right? Why doesn't he just tell David in this chapter, like, hey, seven chapters later, I'm going to take care of this, right? Just trust me. Like, just calm down. You don't have to keep running in caves. You can go home with your wife. You can hang out with Jonathan. Just chill out, calm down, and trust me because I'm going to take care of this. Why didn't God tell David the outcome ahead of time? Why didn't he do that? Because he wanted to teach David to trust him. He wanted to teach David to trust him. If he just told him the outcome in chapter 24, David wouldn't learn to trust God very much. He wouldn't have been able to train up his men to trust God. Like as they object to this and as they think this is crazy and as it doesn't make sense and they want to respond to first impulses, he wouldn't have been able to train them up and coach them up of like, hey, I'm going to trust God. I'm asking you to do the same. A lot of those men went on to be people in David's cabinet. As David became king, those men came up to lead with him. And what God was doing out in the wilderness, as Saul is trying to kill David, is he's teaching him to trust him. He's teaching his men to trust him. He knew that David wasn't ready to be king yet, that he needed to learn what it was like to trust God as he led other people, that his men needed that lesson too. And so he doesn't give them the eventual outcome. He teaches David to trust him, and he does the same thing in your life. And he does the same thing in my life. Maybe you're in a conflict, in a relationship, and you're thinking, man, if I just knew if I just knew the other person wanted to reconcile also, I would go to them. And if God were just to come tell you, like, listen, if you'll go to your family member, if you'll go to this friend, if you'll apologize and repent, it's going to go great. Just do it. It'll be beautiful. And if you knew that, you'd think, man, it would be so much easier. At your job, you're working hard, you're sacrificing. And wouldn't it be amazing if God were to come along and tell you, keep working hard. Stay in there. Like fight the good fight. Eventually, this job is going to be life-giving for you and those around you. Just stick with it. If you knew that ahead of time, wouldn't that be so much easier? It would, right? But that's not the way it's set up. Like We don't know the outcome ahead of time. But listen, since we don't know, why don't we follow the one who does? Since we don't know, that's not the way it's set up. Like God is God and we are not. We don't know the outcome, but God enables us to trust him. He gives us grace and mercy and everything that we need so we can trust him and so that we can learn and how to grow in trusting him as he molds us into his image. Since we don't know the outcome, why don't we follow the one who does? Why don't we resist that first impulse to send that email, to go to that person to go to a place of depression because everything's gone bad in your life? Why don't we resist that first impulse? Why don't we instead involve God, who's holy, and display mercy to those around us, to be a blessing to those around us? And then why don't we trust God? Because he knows. Because this isn't shocking to him. 
Because while you may know not, not know how that other person is going to respond, he does. And he has the grace that's going to get you through that. And listen, that person may not respond well to you. That job may not be worth sticking it out for. And through that process, God's going to continue to teach you to trust him. He's going to pull you close, and he's going to take care of you. And that's what he does for David. Many of you know this story, and you know that in this story, David doesn't always resist first impulse, right? David doesn't always do that. Like later in the story, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and he goes on to have her husband killed. So David doesn't always do that, but there's another opportunity in the very next chapter for him to be in this scenario where he can commit vengeance, he can take revenge, he can do what seems right, but he doesn't. Chapter 25, you don't have to look there, but just listen. Samuel's mentor has died, or, or sorry, David's mentor, Samuel, has died. So we think David's probably emotional at this point. He sends some men to a neighboring village to a guy named Nabal. And it says he is rich in chapter 25. Literally, the word is heavy. It means that Nabal was loaded. Like, Nabal had plenty to give. David sends his men to Nabal and says, hey, go get some food. Like, we're tired. We're in these caves. We're running for our lives. Go get some food from this guy, Nabal. He probably has some. And Nabal says no. And not only does he say no in chapter 25, but he mocks David. Like, he says, who is this David, son of Jesse? So David hears about this, and he's furious. He puts on his sword. He tells everybody else to get their swords, and he's ready to go out and kill this guy. He doesn't resist first impulse in this case. But Nabal's wife, a lady named Abigail, she starts baking goods, and she brings food out to David's men. And she cuts them off, and she brings food, and she begs for mercy, and she apologizes on behalf of her husband. And this is so interesting. She basically gives David a mini-sermon. And it's, it's really a fantastic sermon. Verse 28, she says, Let no wrongdoing be found in you. She's talking to David. She says, Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master, she's talking about David, David, you will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. It's a great mini-sermon. Some great illustrations, right? She uses two pieces of imagery. She uses a bundle, and she uses a sling. A bundle was a shepherd's bag. And so she's saying, you're secure is in a bag tied around God's waist. And then the sling. Like, has David used a sling before? Yeah. Like, he knows what that's like. So he knows the shepherd's bag. He knows how the bundle works. He knows how the sling works. And she says, your enemies are going to be flung far away, just like with a sling. And she uses that to beg for mercy and to ask David to operate in kindness. She gets to his heart. She leads him to trust God, to do what's right, that he'll take care of you. And he doesn't go on to kill Nabal. And this is a great example in the life of David. For us to trust God, that he will take care of us. He did it in chapter 24. He did it in chapter 25. As he trusts God, that God's going to take care of him that eventually you're going to be king, that I'm going to work it out. You don't have to take this upon yourself. And in your life, that's what God's going to do. And it may not look how you want it to look. It may not look how you think it should look. It may not work out in that relationship, in that job, in that conflict, how you think it should work out. But God's going to take care of you. If you know him, you're his child. He's going to take care of you. We see that in David's example. 
But really, as we talked about, David's example is flawed, but God is faithful. He sends Jesus in the line of David to come, to give his life on our behalf, to show us mercy as the perfect example. 1 Peter 2 says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That when Jesus is on the cross, he puts mercy on display for the whole world. And he trusts God with the outcome. And what happens? Jesus rises from the dead three days later. He rises in victory. And because of him, we have the opportunity to receive this mercy, to display this mercy, to do the right thing, to trust God with the outcome. Because Jesus has done that for us. That David is flawed, but God is faithful. And through David's line, he sends Jesus. And he's our example. Listen, I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know about your past. But I would guess there's situations in your life where you regret sending that email. And you think, man, if I would have just waited. I would guess there's situations in your life where in relationships you regret saying something to someone else. And you think, man, if I would have just sought God in that. If I would have just gotten wise counsel in that. Like maybe I wouldn't have went down that road. And maybe I wouldn't be haunted by that today. Maybe that's you. And maybe you're thinking even about a situation right now in your life where you're wondering, what should I do? Should I go by my first impulse? And should I just react? Or should I look to God? Should I resist that? Should I display mercy? Should I trust him? And you're wrestling with that in your heart. Listen, we all wrestle with that in different seasons and in different times of our lives. You need to know that if you go with your first impulse, it's going to haunt you. As we fast forward in David's life, and he commits adultery, and he has that guy killed, it haunts him, and it haunts him for generations. It doesn't mean God doesn't forgive. It doesn't mean he's not still God's child. But there's ramifications for that. There's consequences for that. So I don't know how you're wrestling right now in the moment, but you need to resist that. You need to trust God. As crazy as that sounds. And some of you are thinking that, yeah, it doesn't make sense, Tim. And it is crazy. What do I do then? You need to cry out to God. And that's what David does. We think around this time, David wrote Psalm 142 when he was hiding out in caves. He's running from Saul. He's wrestling with how to proceed, right? He doesn't know if he should attack Saul. He doesn't know if he should keep running and just be patient. He's wrestling with this, and he cries out to God, Psalm 142. And that's what you need to do. And that's what I need to do. If you're struggling and you think, I don't know what it looks like to cry out to God, I just want to read this psalm together. And for us to make this our cry to God. And maybe you're thinking, I'm not really affected by anything. I'm just kind of enjoying life right now. And there's not really many tension-oriented items in my life that I need to decide. Am I going to do this or that? But you will one day. And so we need to cry out to God together. So I'm going to read Psalm 142 as we close. David says this. He says, I cry out to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him, before I tell him my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. But I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. 
Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Let me pray. Father in heaven, that is our cry. Um, I don't know what these men and women have experienced in their past. I don't know what they're experiencing now, but I would imagine there's some scenarios in their lives where maybe somebody's not trying to kill them, but maybe they're faced with a tough decision. Do I do the right thing no matter what happens? Do I trust God with that? Or do I respond with my first impulse? Do I react? Do I retaliate? Do I react out of anger? Do I react selfishly? And and maybe they've experienced that before, and I know they have, and maybe they're experiencing it right now. And God, if they are, God, I pray that you would point them to cry out to you that if they're wrestling with this, that they would wrestle with you, not absent from you, that they would involve you, a holy God, in this process, a God who is righteous, loving, gracious, and merciful. They would involve you. They would look to you. They would cry out to you as David did and trust you as they respond in conflict and difficult decisions and scenarios where they could go towards sin that they would go towards you and they would trust you. And and we would do that this morning. We would cry out to you even as we respond for help. Because God, we need it. And so we ask you for that now. It's in Jesus' name we pray.